0: Everyone, and such a warm welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach. I'm the founder of Molly Rowan Presents. And as many of you know, I've been hosting an ongoing series of restorative justice and social healing in the United States and beyond. And I have to say that tonight's call and tonight's guest, um, it's really close to home for me. And so I'd just like to take a moment here with you all before I introduce our incredibly moving uh, activist, grassroots mother, um, and beyond guest tonight, Lois DeMott. I'll be introducing her in just a moment. She's the founder of Citizens for Prison Reform. Um, But I'd like to first just take a moment uh, uh, for us all to just place our attention If we can, on if you're in a place where you feel safe to do so, um, just to place your attention in your heart and to perhaps send out a thought to those who are incarcerated in the United States, and not only that, those who have mental illness who are incarcerated in the United States, and then of course we can can expand that prayer or thought or wish to all those in the world who are incarcerated, whether they have mental illness or not. Um, And I'd I'd like to just specially dedicate this call tonight to Lois DeMott's son, Kevin DeMott, and also to my own mother, Ray Ann Leach. Um, She is incarcerated in Idaho and has been for 12 years. She has mental illness as does Lois's son, Kevin. So tonight's call, um, as I mentioned, hits deeply home for me. And out of the things that, that I know Lois has seen and that I know myself I have seen from the inside, I offer this call as a forum and a moment of expansion and hope for those who are... Um, incarcerated for those who are family members or friends of those incarcerated, that um, new systems are, are on the way and that we do have solutions and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, even amidst this darkness. So um, thank you all for just taking that moment of reflection with me and with Lois. And um, just, to, just to take a few moments here really quickly to let you know that tonight's format is similar to the formats that we have ongoing. It's meant to be a community forum, so I'm hoping that those of you that are here tonight, we have a wonderful group, um, have questions that you'd like to ask Lois, and we will have a &A, Q&A time pausing around the first 20 minutes or so after Lois has shared for a while. Um, and then we'll do the same and pause again for more questions, more comments, and reflections. Um, and, and I'll prompt you to hit one on your keypad if you have a question. And I see that there is one person in the audience tonight already who has a question. So if you could please hold that just, just for a moment. I, I promise to get to you tonight. Um, finally, and um, with great It's a deep honor to have Lois DeMott here with me tonight. Um, Lois is a mother of two boys. She worked to provide her children the best life experiences. She had various supporting opportunities, um, church involvement, and trips throughout the U.S. with them. Her youngest son, as I mentioned, Kevin, had severe mental and emotional disorders episodes of raging and unpredictable behavior that became more apparent through the years. By the age of 10, Kevin's illness was more pronounced. His diagnoses are now um, bipolar, intermittent explosive disorder, and depression. Um, Fast forward to um, the fact that Kevin is now in the adult prison system in Michigan, and I'm going to let, of course, Lois share more about that in just a moment, but I wanted to highlight and underline that Lois um, was nominated and received the National Mother of Distinction Award for efforts in championing change in the juvenile justice system. Um, She received that award in 2009, and she is the founder of the Citizens for, for Prison Reform Which is based out of Michigan, but is is rapidly expanding throughout the United States. Um, Her motto is the beautiful Margaret Mead quote Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And it is a great honor to introduce to you tonight Lois DeMott. Hello, Hello. I would like to take just a
1: minute for each of us to picture the setting that Kevin is in tonight and it's beyond Kevin, it's numerous other individuals here in the United States. Kevin tonight is sitting in a cell that is approximately 8 feet by 16 feet. It has no window, so he gets no daylight. He's sitting in this cell for 24 hours a day. He's only brought out three times a week for a 10-minute shower, as well as for the two-hour visit that we get upon our eight-hour drive to go and see him each, each week. He gets four visits a week. So that's the conditions that tonight Kevin and many, numerous others, are sitting in um, within our prison systems. I'd like to share a little bit of the history that led up to Kevin's incarceration. I want you to understand that it wasn't a one-time criminal act that put him behind bars, but rather years of, of um emotional and mental illness that, that led to his incarceration. It's really ironic because when the children were small, I worked at the hospital, and I would go in, and I would see inmates brought in that were shackled to the chair, and I was petrified of, of who they were. To me, they represented evil, violent human beings And I was very afraid of them. And I avoided walking down that hallway, if at all possible. My mindset at that time was that they did the crime. They need to do the time. And that they were getting what they deserved. But I never stopped to learn what went on inside the walls of jails or prisons. And at that time, Kevin was just a very young boy. Two or three years old. At this point, he had never slept well, and he had these outbursts of rages that came on around. He was around three, four years old where we saw a significant increase. We never knew when it was going to happen, how long it would last, or what would trigger it. We sought help through our local pediatrician, psychologists. And finally, at the age of nine, we, we tried medications for the very first time. We were in constant therapy um, as a family, and um, him individually. Uh, the medications that were tried, it was very difficult. The side effects um, made him extremely lethargic. He had a significant weight gain, and it was impossible to keep him on the medications. By the time he was 10, he'd had his first psychiatric stay. Um, he was suicidal and he was hurting himself. He had, um, would frequently um, do headbanging or um, biting himself or cutting himself. And um, we really didn't know that much ourselves, I guess, at that point about mental illness. And I do have some regrets as I look back. The other side of Kevin was this wonderful child that was such a hard worker. He loved to do kind things for people around him and he loved to surprise us with all types of gifts and special, and special ways. So at this point, um, my sister, his aunt, suggested that he go and live with them on the farm and that perhaps that this would help him Um, to overcome the problems that he had. They took him in and he resided there for um, almost the school year, but they saw all of the same patterns and had significant challenges themselves, the same ones that we did and they could no longer keep him. When we came back home we turned to our local community mental health services and There we were told he wasn't severe enough for their most intense therapy program. He finally wound up in the juvenile home. He was running away and we began calling the police. We were at a loss. We were scared to death for his safety and community mental health told us that we would need to get the court involved in order to get the funding that we needed. Um, we felt that our only hope was to get him into residential care at this point. Because of the significant issues that he was having, he'd been truant at school. Um, He would be missing for sometimes two or three days, and we were really concerned for his safety. So it was very difficult on all of us. His older brother, um, including, would often isolate so that he didn't have to deal with these rages when they were occurring. We were a whole family at that point, and it certainly is very challenging on marriages when you're dealing with mental illness of this significance. He would experience more and more odd behaviors, becoming very manic and then at other times very, very depressed so it would be impossible to get him off from the couch. He had numerous juvenile stays um, as we continued to call the police with him being truant, him missing. Um, he became rough with us at a couple of points, and the court finally sent him to out-of-state residential treatment. Little did we know that that wouldn't be the fix-all. Um, there he got... Um, got involved and learned about gangs. He had become involved in selling marijuana and was very obsessed with the money. The drug dealers set him up to do their dirty work. By the age of 13, he had run out of four life benefits on our private pay insurance. So any help that we got from that point on, we had to pay out of pocket um, or use um, community mental health. He had had four psychiatric stays by the time he was 13 and two out-of-state placements in Indiana. He came back home and he wanted to re-enter regular school um, and the stressors were just significant. It only took about a month and he had a total breakdown. He was unstable. He began to run again and he was nabbed by drug dealers. He owed them money. They drove him up to a Little Caesars pizza. They gave him a toy gun and a mask. He went in to hold up the store, but he got scared and ran out. This is the crime that he was then given a blended sentence, which meant if they sent him to treatment and he failed, then he he would go into adult prison. They basically gave him an adult prison sentence at that point. Um... They sent him out to Iowa, what was supposed to be a treatment facility. I moved out there because I worked from home and I was able to do that. We were to be in therapy together weekly. And upon arrival, um, I learned that there was no psychologist on their staff, that they didn't have any therapists. And he was there for about six months when he had another breakdown and he became very suicidal. He actually there began cutting himself. He was chewing the bows off from his glasses and cutting his arms. So he was sent back to Michigan to the juvenile home. He spent 10 days locked up in a cell there, continued to cut himself with broken glass. They found him hanging by the light He attempted suicide as he knew that he was facing adult prison. This time, he was 15 years old. The judge told us that in the adult prison system, he would get the necessary help that he needed. Once he went into the prison system, we really didn't know anything about it, and we kind of stepped back because we'd heard that if you got involved that they would retaliate. I worked with a psychologist some, but I really didn't know or understand anything about the system. We learned quickly that the juveniles ages 13 and 14 in the state of Michigan are housed in with prisoners up to the age of 26. There's no separate unit for them. We learned that they have no mental health programs for these juveniles. If they need significant mental health help, they have to be waived over into the adult prison, mentally ill hospital portion of, of the, the prison here in Michigan. And that's exactly where Kevin wound up seven months after he entered prison. He was unable to conform and unable to cope with the prison setting. He ended up with 53 tickets, and they had him in solitary confinement for a month prior to transferring him. Once he got transferred, He was kept in a cell, caged like an animal, 24-7. He ate all of his meals alone. This went on for months. He deteriorated numerous times throughout the months that he sat in, in this solitary confinement. And yet, as he looked around, he saw others who needed more help than himself. One of these was a child who actually happened to be 14 years old, who was being horrifically abused, who had the mentality of a six to eight-year-old child. And so he begged me to reach out and to locate this youngster's grandmother. And I was able to find her in Ohio. And at that point, Kevin also kept telling me that there was advocacy groups and that I should get on the computer and try and look for them. Um, I did that, and I found American Friends Service Committee, which is located out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. They happen to be a nationwide organization. They have um, organizations in numerous states, and they do direct prisoner advocacy work. Um, They're phenomenal, huge help to prisoners and their families. They invited me to a rally, and a friend convinced me that I needed to go, so we went, and it was only the day after I'd met them. We came to Lansing here at the Capitol, and the rally was in memory of Timothy Souders, a prisoner who had died at that point two years prior. He was mentally ill. He was 21 years old and he died because he was restrained for 72 hours straight. He, his medications had been changed. He had become unstable and in the heat of August he was restrained and not given hydration. He wasn't fed and he basically died of, of dehydration. I met his mother at the rally, and I met numerous other prisoner families, some of whom may be on this call tonight. That day, August 6th, was a life-changing event for me. I realized, first of all, that I wasn't alone, and that there were numerous families and supporters around me who could offer me wisdom and hope and teach me about the system. I also learned that if I didn't stand up and advocate for my son and for numerous others, that they were likely to end up being a Timothy Souders. So this day was the beginning of my advocacy work. Molly, I'm not sure
0: if we want to. Yes, thank you so much, Lois. Um, one, of, one of the statistics that I'd like to just bring up tonight, um, and we're going to go into questions and comments here. Um, I was just reading this afternoon uh, a report from the Human Rights Watch, which is a fairly recent report from earlier this year um, called from a federal report. Saying that 75% of female inmates in the United States suffer from some form of mental illness. Um, I believe the statistic was slightly lower for men. I, I think it was around half. Um, and, of course, there's more men in prison than women um, number-wise. But, But nonetheless, it's important for us to also point out that the United States is less than 5% of the world's population and yet we house um, probably much over a third of the world's prisoners. And I also would like to just bring up the fact that um, prison, the prison industrial complex, and many of you probably are very aware of this, that uh, there are companies that are traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And they are privatized companies, of course, that they come in and, um, and reap, reap massive profit off of uh, keeping the beds full and not only that, building new prisons. So there's, there seems to be a very deep corporate interest in, um, in the system actually failing what it's saying it's trying to do, which is to, of course, um, lower recidivism rates, and to restore people back into society, so to speak, um, which is, uh, is very questionable in, in my view. Um, so, Lois, you, you've just poured your heart out about this, this journey that you've experienced, and I just want to um, go ahead and open up the call for any comments questions and I know that, the, that there was someone that had a question earlier. Um, so I'll just go ahead and open up the line for you. Shelly, are you do you still have a question or a comment for Lois? Shelly, are you there? Okay, I guess Shelley's um, not not on the call or, or maybe away for a moment. So If you do have a question or a comment for Lois, please press 1 on your keypad. And one one of the things, Lois, that you pointed out about, um, you you said that the first day of your your renewed hope of your activism work was knowing that you weren't alone. And I so can relate to that. And in fact, um, for everyone gathered tonight, uh, Lois and I just recently have connected, and um, one of the things that seems to be really important, not only in, in prison reform and in, in prison activism, um, but for, you know, for the, the wide scale of, um, of all the things that we journey through in our lives, is knowing that we're not alone, that we do have a story that is not unlike others. Stories and and gathering together in a way that helps us to feel empowered and to ignite our voice um, looks like we have a couple questions here Lois so I'm going to go ahead and open up the line to Mike. go ahead, Mike.
2: Thanks for sharing us uh, I don't have any words, but uh, a question I have I, I do have some exposure to working with some <clears throat> My godsons sons in state prisons. And when you use the term uh, one-third have mental illness, how do they define mental illness? It's a really broad question. I'd just really like to understand that a little more.
0: Great, Mike. Thank you. Lois, would you like to field that question or would you like me to put in my two cents? Well, I...
1: You know, I will just comment on that, and then I think certainly, Molly, your, your experience and in, in information may be um, worth a lot more. It is very difficult, and what we're finding um, in our work is that frequently we see prisoners who have had a lifelong history or nearly lifelong history who've been on medication for numerous years come into the system and they will undiagnose them. They will say, we've decided you're not mentally ill or we can't afford the medications and they take them off. And so um, that's one of the things that as we start um, pushing to end segregation here in Michigan or to bring segregation numbers down and to get these people out of the cells, I'm going to ask that they look to those who have had in their documents known Mental health history, and clearly um, you know on diagnosing people once they've entered the system to me that's that's a huge problem that we need to look at and address because I do believe the numbers are much higher than what what we think they are
0: right i i would I would completely agree with that lois that we we received statistical reports and yet um a lot of times, it, it does appear that there are, um, you know, there's underreporting because of the motivation of the corporate interests and um, of, of the the underlying kind of shadow within this system to um, you know, to to keep the numbers where they want them, I, I suppose. And and Mike, to if I'm hearing your question correctly. Um, to, to kind of speak to what you were asking, I think where you were trying to go with that was um, uh, there, there is a range of, um, of mental illnesses, of course, and the, the, there's, there's more extreme, and the more extreme ones could be considered those with um, you know, schizoaffective disorder like my own mother, um, voices are heard, um, psychotic episodes can be experienced, whereas um, mental illness can, in, in the prison system, um, you know, if, if someone is on an antidepressant medication, that can also be considered a light form of mental illness. I believe, I don't quote me on that, but I believe that that is kind of like the the, the nuance range for how um, those statistics are are pulled together, if if someone is in me, in the medical unit for any reason, um, to, for uh, receiving uh, medication for um, depression or for for any range of of mental illness, um, then then that's considered to be uh, a part of the statistic. Is that is that what you were asking, Mike?
2: Yeah, that's yes, that is part of it. I think it is I listen to you. It seems like one of the, the, the issues is, is the system is overloaded. From you know, We can look at it from different points of view. Certainly the uh, economic uh, issue has a lot to do with it, and I've been ex- experienced that. But the other side is I wonder if we're not doing a disservice by allowing uh, say, for example, depression and mild depression, which, I mean, we all suffer at one time or the other, to be even classified as a mental illness because that makes it appear that the that the task of helping those with severe issues uh, becomes overwhelming and economically unfeasible. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what... It, what- what
1: I see in, in Michigan is that those who have the milder forms, um, they clearly are classified differently. They are not in inpatient services. They, they have inpatient level of services within um, the correction system where they are actually are supposed to be getting out to mental health groups. They're supposed to have three or four groups a day. Therapeutic groups, music, art, um, anger, a lot of different um, methods of therapy are used. So these lower level of prisoners simply see a psychiatrist maybe every three or four months and are getting their medication, but they are not offered any of the other mental health
0: services that the more severe mentally ill receive. However, um, and Lois, just to add to that too. The excuse me, Lois, but, um, but just just to add to that, Mike, that, that just to understand the um, the baseline for, for working with, with people with more extreme mental illnesses, um, and even um, those with what might be termed mid range, would be you know that it's a, it's a a three or four fold process. Um, that involves um, human connection. Um, It involves proper psychiatric tracking and um, counseling and, you know, a sense of of connectedness with life, you know, and and other facets, too. So, but but what what Lois was saying is that, you know, that um, even those with extreme mental illnesses in the prison system um, as far as my knowledge and my research and my, my first-hand experience have seen, are not receiving any, anything close to what, um, what would even be looked at as an expenditure on the books um, of, of any measure. I mean, they're doing minimal uh, to keep these people alive, in my opinion. Um, and, and they're not, I mean, they, they, they give these people medication um, but that's about where it begins and ends. The psychiatrists um, are not even often um, psychiatrists that have um, proper, I mean, they're not psychiatrists. They're, they're, they're nurses, they're, they're CNAs, um, who are allowed to do uh, adjustments with people's medication. And, and so, um, you know, it, it, it is a, it's a very important question Um, that you ask, and and there's also so many dimensions to this issue. (laughs) Lois, did you have anything else that you wanted to say? And we'll we'll take another question. We've got quite a few people wanting to ask questions tonight.
1: Well, I think the other thing that I really want to make clear, because I've talked about the inpatient psychiatric um, units that they have where there's different levels and they're able to get out and go to groups, but what you have to understand is, If they continue to have breakdowns and they continue to receive tickets then they lose even those groups that they have and they end up putting them in segregation and they strip them of all mental health services except for getting the medication and seeing a psychologist maybe if they're lucky once a week and my guess is it's probably a short visit. Um, we've had a couple of them who have spent more time with our son um, in the past. And, and so that's what you get at the other end of the spectrum if they continue to have breakdowns.
0: That's the services that they're receiving. And then, of course, finally, the, the very fact that in the first place, many states don't even have an insanity plea or any provision at the baseline for uh, those mentally ill who do become entangled with the criminal justice system? Um, so that that's one of the primary places. I'm guessing, Lois, that um, that Citizens for Prison Reform and 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 groups like yours are, are, are looking closely. I know NAMI is looking closely. Uh, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill um, does some advocacy work in in that area. Um, so Lois, can can we go ahead and take
3: another question. Yes. Are you mm-hmm. right. Yes. Lynn, go ahead. Um, hello, um, Molly and and Lois. I um just just my heart <laughs> goes out to both of you. Um I I understand um that we are um, talking about, you know, a, a st- systemic, a deep systemic issue here. And my question was, um, or is, um, regarding your experience around uh, legal counsel, um, going through any part of this process, and also any experience you may have um, encountered with legal um, regarding you know changes within this obviously deep systemic problem, so I, I, I'm just curious to to get any feedback on that.
0: Doris, mm, would you like to respond to that? Well, I guess I'm, I'm I just, happy to as well. <laughs>
1: You know, we we've, we've done a lot of work with Michigan Protection Advocacy. They they can get in, they have an attorney that can get into the prisons unannounced at any time. We've utilized them. We've utilized recipient rights within the correction system, but there's only one person to serve all six thousand of the mentally ill prisoners in the state of Michigan. Beyond that we've begun to seek out and look at other alternatives to bringing change. And we're in the midst of that process um, because we're just finding that I believe it's going to take all, all methods and it, it's going to take a pushing forward on, on all sides to really bring the necessary change that we need to see within most of the states.
3: Okay, and I was also wondering um, just regarding any legal representation you may have had um, as you were going through this process. Um, What was your experience with that? Did you feel it was inadequate? Um, or that you were just dealing with a system that was, you know, so much larger. As you were, you know, discussing various laws in place, um, did you? What What was your experience with legal in we, that we hired, personally?
1: Yes, um, we hired a, a private attorney when when his um, his crime was committed. We paid a significant amount of money. We hired what we thought was the best attorney. Um, unfortunately, this is an attorney who knew little about mental illness and an attorney who had no experience in dealing with juveniles in the court system. And um, frankly, this was a horrendous mistake. He was never offered. We asked for competency testing. He. We were told by the judge that it wasn't available until he turns 18. We've now learned that that's incorrect. Mm-hmm. And he actually was never, we just learned recently um, to an attorney that has gone through his records, that he was never, he actually never signed the appeal papers. He thought he signed the appeal papers and no one ever discussed it with us. Um, He signed a paper stating that he could appeal it, but he was extremely medicated on that day when he was sentenced. He'd been in a psychiatric hospital for a week. We were in extreme shock, and frankly, we didn't ask all the right questions. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you mind if I go ahead and and share a bit on, on that question that Lynn's asked. Um, I just, uh, I also want to just add, Lynn, um, that the representation that, in, just like with Lois, um, our family hired the former Attorney General of Idaho, in fact, um, thinking that his uh, Republican status would help us in, in this case given that that he had a lot of support during his term politically. uh, In fact, I think he served two terms as as Attorney General of Idaho. Um, So he was our most recent representative um, in the last hearing that that my mom had. And he, he, not unlike Lois and her family's attorney, uh, failed miserably to really understand the nuances, I mean, how can you really understand the nuances of mental illness? It is a mystery, um, and it is something uh, so tricky to bring to the, le- the legal realm. And yet, um, one of the things that I believe Lois and I were in our discussing together, one of the things that, that feels so essential in the legal realm um, as, it, as it concerns mental illness is to bring the humanity of the person who is being um, subjected to a prison sentence into the realm of the, of the courtroom. Um, and to bring, of course, the documentation of, of the, the good treatment that they've had and then to note where the failures have been. Um, in my mom's case, a psychiatrist misdiagnosed her um, severely and dropped uh, following her on a medication that was primary to her, her well-being. And so she was, um, from, as a result of that, that's where, what, what caused her to um, finally be imprisoned. And so I would say that the response, though, to that question, the legal question here, um, we might look to people like J. Kim Wright and Cutting Edge Law and the many holistic law and integrative law practices um, that are popping up even in the past few years. So anybody that is interested in, in finding out more about some of, of what's just recently popping up as um, holistic law practices, as, as evolutionary law per se, you can check out cuttingedgelaw.com for that. Um, I hope that gives you some insight. Um, I, I also noticed that, that parole boards, and, and paroles and pardons, um, they, uh, they're so overwhelmed with um, so many cases that uh, oftentimes to even comprehend uh, a case such as is so complex as, as someone with mental illness is, is such a, 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 an extraordinary reach for them. And, um, of course, safety and uh, public safety and then safety to oneself are, are the big main um, kind of barriers between uh, especially a person with mental illness and um, reintegration back into the community. So I hope that that helps, Lynn.
3: Yes, thank you. I mean, my first um, you know, what I think of first is is to find um, locate attorneys at, or any professionals in mental health that have had some success with this Um, And as you say, take a look at uh, Kim Wright's work. Um, Anyway, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Go ahead and and, um, thank you, Lynn. And, Lois, shall we take one more question before we dive back into some more Mm -hmm. sharing about citizens for prison reform? Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Catherine, go ahead. You're live. Welcome.
3: Hi. Hi, Molly and Lois. Thank you so much, um, Lois, for taking us on that journey and really being able to deliver that story in a way that I could totally walk through it with you. And what a gift that is for you to be able to do that for people that don't know what that feels like. So... uh, I'm profoundly moved by uh, just your ability to be able to share at that level. And just one quick question is the word I think that keeps coming to mind for me is community, and I wanted to ask you what do you think about that word when you hear the word community? Thank you. Wow. Uh,
1: Community for me in the last couple of years has, has become a profound word and to me my community now really has particularly since Martin Luther King Day last year my community has become prisoner families and supporters and citizens who have climbed on board to see that we have to come together, we have to support each other, and we have to be unified. And we have to be willing to, to step out together and to bring awareness to our elected officials and to the general public as to what we have going on inside the system. And until we're willing to do that, until we're willing to break down the walls and to reach out to those around us, change cannot be brought that's what it's going to take and um it's it's just been the most touching experience for me the families that i've met just even in the last 2 weeks we had a legislative day that we put on in our capitol building and we had right around 180 in attendance this was huge considering that we've only been um, up and running since um, January. I met so many new families, citizens that came to tell their stories, constituents who came with concerns. And so many of them say exactly what I, what I have said from the get-go, that I felt so alone that I don't, I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know the system I didn't know how to advocate for my son. And so by bringing these people all together and reaching out to more and more prisoner families, it's creating a a unity that, to me, is most powerful.
0: So, Lois, um, uh, it looks like we have more questions, but... um, if you can just hold that question or those questions right now, um, Lois, I would just love for you to dive back in a little bit more if you would, and just share a bit more about your journey, um, your discoveries um, about citizens prison uh, excuse me citizens for prison reform. And by the way, if you would like to go to their website, that's www.mIC that's M-I-C-P-R dot O-R-G, and uh, Lois, you pointed out that um, the acronym for Citizens for Prison Reform, of course, is C-P-R, and pointed out that our prisons really, the the systems need C-P-R at this point. Um, So, Lois, just go ahead and go back in, and, and then we'll pause again in a bit for a few more questions.
1: Yes, I'd like to share that last September of 2010, Kevin had had a significant, the, the most significant break that he'd ever had. He was then sent into solitary confinement for the first time. That was to be long-term solitary confinement, and it had always been my fear. He got into solitary confinement, and shortly after, he and the psychologist made the decision that it would be great if they could see him on baseline, and he went off from all of his medications. By November, he had deteriorated um, greatly. He was harming himself, he was destructing his cell. And when we showed up to see him, on January 5th for a visit, we learned he, he had kept a lot of this to himself, the conditions that he was living in. He had no mattress. He would not had a mattress in a month. They would shut his electricity off, so the only light that he had was the daylight coming in. He was not receiving any of the daily mail that we were sending. He had been hog-tied and restrained numerous times. And we showed up for this visit, and he just didn't have the will to, to go on. He thanked us for all of the money that we'd ever spent and for all of the time that we'd ever given. And he told us goodbye. And I knew at that point that I had to do something quickly and something significant. So I called in Recipient Rights, and I called the attorney with Michigan Protection Advocacy. they showed up, and clearly the conditions that he was living in were much more horrendous than we had ever known. He actually had been banging his head on the wall and was written tickets for this and restrained um, in hard restraints. And it just so happens that in the last two months I've been able to obtain photographs of this horrendous restraint process. He'd lost 25 pounds in the short time that he was there because his meals were often being withheld. We looked around and we realized that he was only one and that so many others don't even have anyone coming to see them. They're all alone. And it really made us just stop and think about, you know, how many others are being treated in this way or even worse, and that no one's paying attention. And I really recognized at that point, too, just how many more families are so alone and hurting and were kept in the dark, not knowing what's going on inside the system. So we were able to get him moved to the inpatient psychiatric care, the the highest level of care. He was moved there on a Wednesday, and we thought for the first time since September we were going to be able to give him a hug and sit in the same room. And there were five of us that drove family members from various points in a horrific snowstorm. I called first that morning at 7 to make sure that he could have his visit, and they said yes. And the two and a half hours that it took for us to get there, we showed up, and they informed us that he'd been moved the previous day back into solitary confinement at the previous prison. That was a moment of anger, pain, and one of my sisters that was along, who had helped in a previous letter-writing campaign, that actually brought him to release for a short three months when he was 17 still she said it's time for another campaign and so we spent that weekend Martin Luther King weekend rallying friends family and I reached out to prisoners families that I'd met in Lansing that I'd met at visits anywhere I could find them
0: we We
1: rallied together. I asked them to do research. We come up with documents and information, facts that we wanted to share. And we proceeded with this letter-writing campaign and continued to weekly send out updates and ask for more letters to be sent. It really brought a lot of attention. Our letters were addressed to the new governor, to all of our senators and representatives, and also to the Michigan Department of Corrections. And so this was the beginning of Citizens for Prison Reform. And Citizens for Prison Reform, I just want to note that it is not only for um, prisoners with mental illness. We want reform for all of the prisoners in the state of Michigan. We believe that there's A much better way to treat prisoners that is cost-effective. It will actually save our state money as well as create humane treatment which in the end will bring them out as a more whole person um, and create a, a safer public and that's one of the questions that I ask. Here in Michigan the mission of the Michigan Department of Corrections is to keep the public safe nothing to do with rehabilitation. And so I frequently ask them, have we done our job? Have we really kept the public safe? If we take these people and they're in a cell or they're walking on the yard, yet they're not receiving the helps that they need, you return them out into our community as as citizens who can contribute and who are rehabilitated, is the public any safer? And I think that's got some people thinking. So we basically did our letter writing campaign and from there I decided that I really wanted to meet these people that I had emailed and networked with. And even talked to on the phone. By this time I had numerous prisoner families calling me, asking for help, NAMI sending people my way, and I in turn would rely on the different organizations in Michigan that have been doing this for a whole lot longer than I have. And so we decided that, that we really wanted to do a one-time meeting and meet face-to-face. And we came together in May for the first time here in Lansing, and we had there were around 35 citizens and loved ones who showed up. And we have continued now meeting. Everyone said, no, we don't want this to be a one-time deal. We want to do this monthly. We've had the organizations come in and speak who do prisoner advocacy work in Michigan. Um, Families are just absolutely loving the the support and the education and the help that we're able to give each other. I learned from them they learned from me. And so it's beneficial for all.
0: Hmm. And one of the, the things, Lois, that seems to be um, for us all, I know that we probably understand more than we'd like, that, that the, the consciousness of the system itself is based, of course, in in such... In Punitive um, beliefs that those the that consciousness that belief informs a system um, in such an ingrained way, and so at times it does feel that you know while wow, the how how do we break that behemoth of uh, uh, that punitive that punitive paradigm? How does that how do those walls fall down? And really, it's by the modeling. Um, like you were saying, Lois, of, of bringing pictures in to legislators, um, doing small acts consistently that um, uplift the truth, the shadow of what this what 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 is happening on the inside because it is not pretty it's it 's rather ugly it 's a lot of uh, of walking human rights violations um, and yet by by bringing your life, I, I just so honor you because you, you know, you've brought your life through this darkness. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to see your son. I mean, the, these pictures that you have are horrific. Uh, he's literally in chains and um, nothing but his uh, underwear um, strapped down by metal chains onto this stretcher, and I just you know um i just so honor you for for bringing yourself through this dark tunnel into a place and and for him too to recognize i mean what compassion this 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 boy has for his his fellow humanity to be saying to his own mom mom please get out there and advocate for this boy mom please you know please do something and so, um, it's just, it's just these small acts um, that are so great. Um, I think Mother Teresa said, um, you know, it, it, the most important thing is that we can do are our, our small acts of love. Those are, in fact, the greatest acts um, that any of us can achieve and, and the consistency over time that we, and, and the belief that there is something um, un, unwinding within this system. I mean, we see Occupy Wall Street and all these Occupy movements and, and uh, worldwide the, the sense of, of the truth coming to light. Um, it just feels to me uh, a, like a very hopeful time, even though it's also a horrific time of witnessing um, I've, I've witnessed within the prison system um, stories of, of uh, one of the, the inmates uh, in Pocatello at the Women's Correctional Center there. Um, she shared with me that uh, while giving birth, they transported her to the hospital in shackles and in the orange jumpsuit and did not take those off. And then when she was in hard labor, they put, uh, put her in a belly chain all the while she's giving birth. And so clearly we are you know, we are at the at the very bottom of the barrel in how we um, in how we see our interconnectivity in especially as it relates to this system and that what I do to you I do to myself. And and so I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna pause there and I I'd like to open it back up again for all of our wonderful friends gathered tonight here. Um, Please press 1 on your keypad if you have a question or a comment. Um, And go ahead, Tyra, you are live. Tyra.
4: Oh, thank you so much. Um, One of my concerns, and thank you for this amazing story. I really appreciate it. I think it's Laura, is it?
1: Lois,
4: and um, my question is: I'm, I'm a psychotherapist, and I'm a spiritual seeker of all, at all, all above, <laughs> all, all the above. And I, I, what I what I want and hope is not only to eliminate such travesties, but to think through what direction we can take what are what are directions that can be taken in in the prisons under the circumstances of our systems and our financial situation in this country and so forth and i'm wondering if your organization has you know begun to address that yes, i would we... like to find them online and and utilize them actually
1: well yes we we have begun to, to work on that. Basically, in January, my older sister made the decision that she was going to come to Lansing, to our state capitol, two days a week and spend going to all of the corrections committee meetings. And then we would go in together and meet individually and take in our personal stories and take in the stories of so many others um, one of them, who's our member, um, Charlie Lane, I know he won't mind me sharing, was uh, a veteran who um, wound up in prison with mental illness. He was put on the wrong medications. He actually bit off the ends of two fingers, picked out mm-hmm. a eye, and was in a coma to die. And I met his dad at that rally, and we became connected And he now is a part of us. He actually was gotten to a hospital, and the doctors there at an outside community hospital recognized he was on the wrong medication that he was allergic to. They got him off, and he actually was released. The parole board looked at him and said, wow, you never should have been sent here. You served our country. You have mental illness. He got out. He's been out now, I think it's for about five years. He owns a farm. He's doing well and he has joined our cause. So we bring him along and we go and we meet with the legislators and we tell our stories. And his parents came and testified and it's taken all of us together, telling our stories and the things that we've witnessed and seen. Um, That's been a big piece of this is waking up and educating the legislators that we have as well as really pushing within the department letting them know that this is unacceptable to us and that we want something different. And so what we've done is gone out. We've done research. We've worked with the organizations here, some in Michigan. Um, We're hoping to build a stronger coalition in that regard, but we've really looked at what a lot of other states have done, and we are working very closely with Maine they actually have a grassroots advocacy organization who's done phenomenal work. Um, You will see their articles on our blog that's on our web. Um, They actually have brought their segregation numbers have been cut in half twice, and they now are determined that they're going to bring an end to segregation within their state. They have put (laughs) programming in at the prisons, and that's what we're asking for. We're asking that from day one when these prisoners enter that they actually have work opportunities, that they have programming that they need, that they're given life skills training, Uh that the whole whole (coughs) idea here is to rehabilitate them and prepare them for release. The fact of the matter is, 95 to 98% of all prisoners have a maximum release date. They will be released. And so what sense does it make for us to not offer them? There's numerous free programs that are out there. We have volunteers that have been wanting to get into the prisons, but they've been shut out. Mm -hmm. We're fortunate we have a new director, and we're hoping to really work with them to be able to offer um, these things. And I think the other thing that we really would like to see is a whole movement to restorative justice on the front end and using mediation and not turning to the court system and punishment as a method of sentencing people for some of these crimes. Clearly, there are crimes where people need to be, they need to be The community needs to be safe. They need to be kept safe. But I believe every person is a human being and that they all deserve to still have a full life, um, even in the midst of the crimes that they committed.
4: Thank you so much. I would very much like to have your website and email um, for further discussion about other states, including California.
0: Yes. Yes, Tyra, what we'll do um, is, uh, as I do with all of these forums, is I offer the opportunity for you to stay in touch with our guest speakers um, by way of the follow-up email with the audio archive that I will be sending to everyone who signed up for tonight's call. Um, And again, the website that you want to go to um, for Citizens for Prison Reform is micpr.org that's micpr.org and my understanding is that they're in process of becoming a 501c3 nonprofit organization and you are welcome to make a donation um, to help that process along at micpr.org and they have a facebook fan page as well under the same name of the organization
4: <clears throat> and, um,
0: Lo- thank you, Tyra, and one, one of the models that I would like to point out, if I may, is the model that we see over in Norway. Um, Lois, you said that uh, you, you pointed to the fact that irregardless of a person's crime, um, they, they, are, they have a right to humane treatment and to being seen and perhaps even to being um, uh, called back to their, um, to their core uh, life and light and, and offering. And um, over in Norway, we see an example, which is in motion and existing, of a system that is, is modeling restorative justice, which also is, of course, getting quite a bit of of resistance and criticism for being too soft Um, and yet we see the recidivism rate there uh, as low as um, under a quarter, so like uh, 25% or under are, um, you know, are are unsuccessful whereas here in the United States recidivism is as high as as 70%. um, that, that what that means is people who are coming back in and staying. Um, and of course, uh, one of the other pieces that I wanted to offer of, as a model um, that I know of existing in the United States that is addressing the reentry piece is a program that I was a founding board member of in Boise, Idaho, called Sustainable Futures. And that program. Um, originally was created to, to welcome um, the women from the East Boise Correctional Facility into a work and life skills program that offered them the opportunity to learn green job skills, um, not unlike uh, the green jobs movement that Van Jones created with um, Green for All, and then to um, to receive also uh, medita- courses in meditation, in you know everything from meditation to, to practical life skills, you know budgeting, um, how how to uh, how to, to prepare for interviews. So uh, and 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 on top of that, it also um, the, the practitioners and the teachers and the people running the program were trained in um, providing a safe container for these people um, and an approach that was humane so that they weren't coming from um, a fear-based mentality or a, um, a punitive mentality when they were helping these women to um, come back into into the community. So um, what I have learned about the stipulations of probation um, just make my jaw drop, because they really, right now as they stand, at least in Idaho, are um, set up for people to fail, um, including uh, one woman was telling me that she has to pay for her own supervision. She's, she's billed for it. Um, she has two months to find a job and to keep a job after getting let out of prison. And she, um, there's a couple other... Uh, uh, Rules that they have to follow that are almost impossible for anyone coming out of that system to meet appropriately, and so in that sure. short amount of time, these these um, these people coming out of prison, women and men alike, are are put under such pressure um, to to fit into a system that uh, is is almost asking them to come back. Um, and so it's, you know, from, from that angle, I, I think that there's, you know, there's so many places that, that we need to focus our attention in um, creating uh, bridges and nets where there aren't any existing right now. Yeah. Um, and then finally, I've noticed a few places in the United States where there are actually alternative um, housing situations uh, for those with mental illness in particular, where they provide um, uh, the ability for people to go, to, to receive appropriate psychiatric care and counseling on site, um, appropriate supervision, as well as um, you know, empowering activities such as gardening and other uh, various life activities that get them out into the fresh air, out doing something with their hands, starting to feel a sense of confidence again. Because many of these people, um, you know, my mom included, and and thousands within the system, um, are told that they're failures and get fired from their jobs within, you know, within the prisons because, um, you know, they just they, it's it's like trying to fit a a square into into a round hole. Um, and so I'd like to, to just close tonight, um, Lois, by again opening up the circle if anyone else has comments, questions, and Lois, um, for you to, to, to also dive into any closing comments that you would like to make. So um, if anyone has any questions or comments, um, please press one on your keypad. And, and Lois, um, could you just... Uh, add to any other programs that you might have seen? I I don't have proper references for the one that I just referred to. I believe it's in Minnesota. But do you know of any other existing alternative housing reentry programs that are specifically for the mentally ill in the United States?
1: I do not specifically for the mentally ill. I do know that actually Michigan has ranked in the top five states for the Best Programming for Reentry. It's called MPRI, and it stands for um, Michigan Prisoner Reentry Initiative. Um, they actually have put together a program that a lot of other states have been looking at as a model. We experienced that program ourselves during the three months that my son was out. Um, but I I believe personally the hole that has existed that now has been recognized is that phase one of the program was never implemented, which is starting to rehabilitate and get them into classes and programming day one, and that has currently only been um, occurring a couple of months before they leave prison. So um, we're hoping that some... Changes will be brought within that program that will make it a much better program than even what it
0: has been. Um, Lois, do you get to talk to to Kevin
1: by phone? No. um, um, Once they're in solitary confinement, all of these things are taken away. Um, There's there's no phone calls. Um, The visits are through GLASS on a phone that's very difficult to hear currently in the circumstance that he's in. And so he has no human touch. And we haven't had conversation since August that has been during the week um, other than than the two-hour visit when we're present with him. I I will say that um, some of the prisons here in Michigan are starting to use some incentive programs for those who are segregated. Um, I have some concerns about the way I'm seeing that they're run. Um, He's supposed to be able to earn a phone call and possibly TV. He's never had a TV or a radio in the four years that he's been in. but because he's injured himself recently, then he started over. And um, that's considered you know, bad behavior, seen as acting out. And so now he has to start over at a lower rung and work his way back up, um, which could be months. I would like to say that we have recognized fully during this time, that there are certain individuals who are working within who care about these people, who are passionate, and who are really doing their best to try and stand up to the wrongs in the system and to treat these people humanely. We want to thank those people. And Kevin recognizes it. He frequently will talk about those that he's worked with who have been of help to him. But those numbers are far and few between. I did want to make sure that I recognize those who are working hard within the system and doing the right thing. It's not an easy job by any means
0: i i want I would just like to acknowledge that as well Lois that is such a key element of recognizing um, for me that uh, as well that there are very very good people working within the correctional systems in fact, a couple of them um, are possibly going to be my guests on this series, and I have a deep level I, i've been on my own journey of uh forgiving all of the system and the individuals within the system for they know not what they do. And those who are um, unkind or acting in punitive ways, they know not what they do. So my, my journey has been one to, uh, to come to a place where I literally can walk into the prison to visit my mother and only have love in my heart, which was not the case the, for, at the beginning. I, I felt so much anger uh, at the system and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't always kind um, with the, the correctional officers and I realized that you know, these, just like the Dalai Lama says the, the, the Chinese are his greatest teacher. The Dalai Lama is one of my greatest um, heroes and so I think of him often as i 'm walking up to the steps of the prison, and i i, I just I, I hold in my heart the the correctional officers as well as the prisoners, and I hold them with such deep love i i don 't know how I got to that place because i I, um, I know that at one point i I was so angry, but i I so thank you for. For making sure that that is clear, because I too feel the same way, that um, you know that there are tremendous efforts being made by many people within the correctional system um, to to come up with answers and solutions, even while working day to day in such a system of of such darkness and of such difficulty and, and stuckness, and so. Um, that acknowledgement is, is really important. And and so I, I know that we're running just a bit over here tonight with such rich and deep, um, heartbreaking, um, hopeful um, journey that we've had together. And I, I wonder, Lois, if we could just close um, with maybe where we started. And that's uh, possibly placing our attention again um, with with those uh, within the system um, with 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 Kevin who right now is in uh, a very small cell without a window who isn't able to have any human contact and who uh, barely can even come out to have a meal and for my mother who is packed into a prison cell with three other people, 10 by 10, who often doesn't have heat in the winter, who uh, eats starchy, um, unhealthy foods every day, and who is faced with um, the, you know, the unkindness and the, the mistreatment, both, both Kevin and my mom and thousands of others every day and for, for what they do to hold space for there to be uh, a transformation in this system. I know for a fact that my mother, and I'm sure Kevin, has affected others within his system, uh, within his unit, and, and where he is when he can go out um, in a way that he has inspired and saved lives. Uh, I've had mothers come up to me of some of the young women saying that, that my own mother has saved their daughter's lives. So I just would like to, to give you, Lois, the opportunity to close tonight's call um, and, and um, say uh, a few closing words, and then, um, then we'll open it up just one last time to, to allow everyone to, to say goodnight. So Lois, just if you have anything else you'd like to add before we close tonight.
1: I just think that I would really like everyone to recognize how profound and important this work is that we're doing. Many of us have sent money across the ocean or even traveled to faraway places to help those in need. Many of us have had a prison sitting in our own backyard. But we never knew the conditions within. We never thought of the needs of these people to help them come out more whole and more full than when they went in. And I just hope that everyone can start to open their minds to this idea that we need to, within our communities, look for those who are willing to do this work with us. We need to look to organize and to turn to our state leaders and be willing to go in and to share with them and to basically say to them, we want something different with our tax dollars. These are our tax dollars that are paying for this kind of treatment. And so I think until we come together and unify, until we can say we expect something better than this in the United States of America, we're going to continue to fall short. And I know this change isn't gonna happen overnight. It's a long, slow process. But I believe together as unified people, we can we can make it happen. I just request that you consider what you can do in in this area within your own state, within your own community.
0: I thank you very much. Mm, thank you so much lois um for for spending almost an hour and a half with us tonight um, and for providing us with such a deep sense of 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 truth and of what is what is happening within this system, so that then we can can come to a place of empowerment and unification, and it, it seems to be happening within our world as we speak, is coming together. And so I thank you, Lois so very much. And I, before I open up the lines for any last comments before we leave, I just want to say once again I would encourage you if you've been inspired as I um, by Lois's work and by Citizens for Prison Reform, please by all means go in and check them out on Facebook, like them on Facebook. Um, their website is M-I-C-P-R .org. That's M-I-C-P-R dot And my next week's guest is um, also uh, someone who has a very special insider's view of the prison system. He himself was in the Folsom prison system for over a decade, and he is now doing um, restorative justice and advocacy work in the United States. His name is Herb Blake, and he'll be my guest next week. Upcoming guests in the weeks to come also include J. Kim Wright, who was mentioned on this phone call tonight, um, of Cutting Edge Law. She'll be November 17th. And then um, James O'Dee will join me, as well as Azeem Kamisa, and Belvi Rooks, and Deedon Gills of Growing a Global Heart. So we've got a wonderful lineup for this month and for December, and then into January. So please come back and join me and uh, our circle again next week at 5 p.m. Pacific. So at this point, I would just like to do something I haven't done yet before on these calls. I'm opening up all of the lines and just would like to uh, invite you all to say a few words, put your voice into the circle as we say goodnight, and you can <laughs> simply just say goodnight uh, or whatever you feel so moved to say. Thank you so much everyone for being here.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you. you. you, Molly.
1: May you all be blessed.
4: You be blessed. Be blessed. We are. And you.
0: May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings have peace. Good night, everyone, and thank you so much. Good night. night. You are currently the only person in this conference.